Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast. My name is Scott Powell, and I am one lone solo lanky guy today. Father Peter is off on a priestly retreat um, in Ireland, of all places. So uh, he's getting some much-needed rest and reflection and prayer time uh, off in the land of the Irish, um, which I know some of you are probably listening from, so he is not far from you. So say a, if you say a prayer for him there, then your prayers will actually reach him faster than they are here with the time change and everything. So um, pray for Father Peter. Uh, pray for me as I captain this podcast alone this week. And um, yeah, thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Um, so we're going to be talking, we're, we're just going to jump right in. There's uh, very little banter I can really give with myself, um, as you know. I'm staring at an empty chair across from me, so I could make fun of it, but I don't think it would serve any purpose. So we'll jump in. So we're celebrating really the, uh, it's the capstone of the Easter season. This is what ends the Easter season. We're celebrating Pentecost, which is... Um, before it was a Christian holiday, and we sometimes talk about this as the birthday of the church in a certain sense, but before it was that, it was a, it still is a very important Jewish holiday. Pentecost is one of what are called the three pilgrim feasts. So three times a year, um, in Jesus's time, uh, Israelites were called to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate these three very important feasts. And Pentecost was one of them. It's sort of the, the capstone of the season. Um, we began, preparations or our Jewish friends sort of began preparations for Pentecost back around Passover. There's a couple things that happened around that time uh, that we'll talk about in a few minutes. So this is a very important day. I want to talk about kind of what it means. Um, And we have a whole new meaning that's been given to us because of what the Holy Spirit has done on the church's first Pentecost. So all that being said, uh, I'm really excited to kind of dig into some of that stuff. But before we do that, our readings for this week are going to be coming. Our, our first reading is coming from Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, the classic Pentecost passage of, of uh, Acts. Uh, so 2, chapter uh, verse 1 to 11, our response, our response oral psalm is coming from Psalm 104, verse 1, 24, 29 through 30, 31, and 34. Our second reading, and there's a couple of options, and I just always kind of uh, uh, go for the first one because it's probably the one most of you are most likely to hear. So the first option, and the first actually, um, despite myself, they're they're both slightly shorter than the second options, and usually I like to go with the long things, but I'm just going to go with the first one because, again, that's what probably most of you are likely to hear. So our second reading, the first option, is coming from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 3b through 7, then jumping to verse 12 through 13. And our gospel, finally, is coming from John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, which was actually kind of a hard call. The the other option is from John 15, um, which is sort of Jesus foretelling what's going to happen when the Holy Spirit comes, which it's a really neat passage, too. So I debated long and hard about which one we talk about. But we're going to talk about the first option, um, which is also really cool. So all that being said, Acts chapter 2, verse 11. Um, what Acts says, this is coming hot on the heels of uh, the apostles having to deal with their first major um, ecclesial crisis, which is that as Acts of the Apostles begins and the church is still, uh, it, it begins, we talked about this last week, right? They see Jesus. Um, we get a little recap of what happened at the end of the gospel. Jesus ascends into heaven and the apostles are amazed and don't know what to do with themselves and kind of go and, and lock themselves back in the upper room. 
<laughs> because they're not quite sure what to do with this information. And Jesus, of course, promised them that the advocate is going to come and he's going to reveal, he's going to enlighten all this stuff. They're going to get it soon. And then he sort of gives them the itinerary for how they are to go spread the gospels. First join Jerusalem, then the surrounding area of Judea, and then out beyond that to Samaria, and then out to the ends of the earth. It's like um, if you throw a rock in a pond, you see the ripples, the 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 lines rippling outward. That's the trajectory of the mission of the church. So that's all happened. After that, the church has to gather together and they say, okay, we have a problem though, because as a church, Jesus has reestablished Israel, which is why he chose 12 apostles, because the 12 apostles, of course, represent the 12 tribes. But the apostles now have a problem. They realize, well, we've lost one. And Judas, of course, uh, committed suicide, realizing what he had done, betraying Jesus, actually so sorrowfully not seeing any possibility of redemption for himself, he committed suicide. And so the apostles have to figure out, okay, well, what do we do about this? So they cast lots because they have to fill his spot because they understand the importance of the 12. If Jesus is reshaping Israel, then 12 matters. And it's going to extend on from there, but that key 12 apostles is very important. So they cast lots and they do a little election. They elect uh, someone to take his place. So now there's 12 again. And that's sort of where we leave off. Um, The gathering of people there that comprised the church at this early fledgling moment, Acts of the Apostles tells us is about 120. So you have the 12 apostles, you have Mary, the Blessed Mother, you have the women, Mary Magdalene, the others, and the disciples. In all, in all, it's about 120 people. That's who's gathered here this day. And so as they're all gathered, it says when the time for Pentecost was fulfilled, so this very important Jewish feast day. By the way, you know, one of the things we see in this reading is that after they receive the Holy Spirit, they're empowered to go out and proclaim the gospel to these huge throngs of people that are gathered. And one of the things our reading this week says is that there was this huge, loud, large crowd, and you guys know the story probably, right? They're all hearing the apostles speaking in their own languages, um, and they're coming from all over the place, right? From, uh, from they say, we are Parthians and Medes and Elamanites and inhabitants of Mesopotamia and Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Perga, uh, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya and Cyrene, um, as well as travelers from Rome, Cretans, Arabs. We all hear them speaking in our own languages. And you might think to yourself, well, how convenient. When the Holy Spirit arrives, yet there happens to be a bunch of people from all these nations gathered outside. Well, the reason that everyone's gathered is because it is Pentecost, and it is one of those massive pilgrim feasts. And this is a great example. You know, in in the Bible, there's really kind of two ways of talking about time. There is kairos time, and that's the Greek word that means, uh, I'm sorry, there's chronos time, which is a Greek word that simply means, chronos, um, you know, as a word for time, simply means kind of what time is it? What chronos is it? And as I'm recording this, it is 10.10 in the morning on Thursday, the 17th. That is chronos. That's what time it is. But then there's another concept of time, which is the idea of kairos. Some of you maybe have been on a kairos retreat. That's where those retreats get their name. And kairos is not just what time is it literally, but it means the idea of God's perfect timing, which is, you know, what the scriptures refer to back when, you know, when when Moses uh, is sent by God to set all of Israel free from Egypt in the Exodus. It's, it's basically God waits for this appointed time. Now is the time that I'm going to act. Sometimes God's reasoning for the times that he chooses is clear and sometimes it's not. And for those of us who are sort of waiting for that Kairos moment that God's going to work in our life for whatever it is that we need, it can be really frustrating. 
But in this case, it kind of makes a lot of sense. The disciples are sitting in the room. They're they're hiding out. They don't know what to do. They've seen all these things. They've seen the resurrection. They've seen the ascension. They know in their heads what's going on, but they have no idea what to do about it. And so 50 days after Passover, as they're gathered there, the whole Jewish world, as well as converts, proselytes, all these people have gathered in Jerusalem. Everybody is there. And so God, of course, says, now, this is the time. This is the Kairos moment because all of these people are gathered. So, and the moment that the huge gathering is taking place, that's the moment that God's going to release this new gift of the Holy Spirit on the apostles, enliven the Holy Spirit that they've already been given by Jesus when he breathed on them, and he's going to change everything. God's timing is always perfect. Uh, You know that old saying, God is never late, but he's rarely early, (laughs) you know? And I like to imagine the apostles just, they're sitting there for about 50 days and they're just like, what do we do? This doesn't make any sense. And, you know, after the ascension, they're like, okay, well, there's something. We know wheels are in motion, but again, we still don't know what to do about it. So we take it back. Oh, by the way, I wanted to say a word about what Pentecost actually is. Pentecost uh, celebrates a couple of things in the Jewish world. Um, at its basic level, it's a harvest celebration. This is the time in the late spring, kind of, you know, beginning of summertime when the crops have sort of reached their completion in the Middle East and the full harvest is beginning. Now, Pentecost is sometimes called the Feast of First Fruits, which um, is a little bit of a misnomer because there's actually another very uh, not as well-known Jewish feast. There's seven biblical Jewish feasts. Um, one of them, or actually two of them, three of them, <laughs> they tend to come in clusters. Let's put it that way. So in the fall, there are three feasts gathered together. You have Yom Kippur, uh, the Day of Atonement, you have the Feast of Sukkot, and you have the, the Feast of Rosh Hashanah. I, I did those out of order. It's Rosh Hashanah first, and then um, uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and then you have Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, all within a, a couple weeks or so of one another. They're gathered together. And then around Passover in the spring, there's another gathering of three feasts. So we just recently celebrated Passover, right? Of course, that is coincides with our Easter. Right after Passover comes a feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is really a, a reflection and a remembrance of when there was no time to actually let the bread rise when they were living in Egypt. And they were waiting for this moment that God was going to set them free. And so they recall that. And immediately after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there's another feast that almost never gets talked about. And I think I've talked about it on this podcast before, but it's called the Feast of the Sheaf of First Fruits. The Feast of the Sheaf of First Fruits. And I think we talked about this back at Easter. But what this feast celebrates, it's literally a couple days after Passover. It's the the Sabbath. um, I'm sorry. It's the day after the Sabbath, after the Passover. So that would put it on Easter Sunday. And it's this day that people would rise very, very early in the morning. And it's the beginning of spring. And so it's the first moment that the harvest is beginning to show itself. And what the people would do would be to go down to the field on that day and they would find the first gleanings of what would become the harvest. And they would find the first sheaf of wheat uh, or barley or whatever it was. And they would take that very, very first fruits that's just starting to show its face and they would dig it up and they would process it into Jerusalem Um talking about how God is giving us the harvest. Look, it's begun. It's started. The first fruits have arrived, and it also um, gets us ready for when that will come to its completion, which happens 50 days later on Pentecost. So on Easter Sunday, all of Judaism was celebrating that year 
the first fruits coming up out of the ground of the new life that God was bringing. At the same moment that Jesus is rising up out of the ground from his death and resurrection. But that's not the end of it. The end of the harvest for the Jews doesn't come until Pentecost, which is now. And then they harvest everything. It's all the rest of the stuff that that first sheaf pointed toward. And now here, 50 days later, you have the church, the fledgling little church, the first sheaf gathered together, huddled, scared in that upper room on Pentecost, 120 of them. And what happens? Well, God's law, God's spirit descends on them and it unleashes the Holy Spirit that the apostles have within them. You know, in Jesus's time, the other thing that the Feast of Pentecost came to celebrate was not just the harvest celebration, which was very important, but it also came to celebrate the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments and the laws of Moses up on Mount Sinai in the time of the Exodus, because they said, well, there's no better harvest that we have than God's word to us. So it also celebrated that. So it's not coincidence that on this day that all of Judaism is celebrating the fulfillment of the harvest, the final fruition of everything that we'd been waiting for, as well as the giving of God's word, his law to Moses on a mountain, that this thing happens in the upper room to the apostles and the gathered church. So when Pentecost was fulfilled, Acts says, they were all together and suddenly there came from the sky a noise like a strong driving wind that filled the entire house in which they were. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, which parted and came to rest on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them to proclaim. This is in a lot of ways a recasting of the story from the Exodus time when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And they saw Moses up on a mountain and they saw wind and fire and strong noises and all of these things that we're hearing as God's word descended upon Moses on Mount Sinai. And I, I feel like I've talked about this on the podcast before. I'm not sure, but there's a there's a reading from uh, a guy named Josephus, who was a Jew, Jewish historian who was... Um, no, it's not Josephus. I think it was Philo in a book called The Decalogue, who was another Jewish historian. But he had a writing called The Decalogue in which he was giving sort of all the other information, the traditions that surrounded the giving of the Ten Commandments. And he wrote that what the Jewish people believed was that when God's spirit came down, when he gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, it said that he descended with fire. Exodus tells us that. Fire descended on the mountain. And it says in Philo's Decalogue that the people down below all heard the voice of God speaking. And they were actually terrified by it. But it says that the word of God was so powerful in the midst of this fire that they actually said that they were seeing God's words rather than just hearing them. They could actually see God's words in the midst of the fire rather than just hear them. And I don't want to get on my usual soapbox that I get on every year about the tongues of fire, which is a, a phrase that kind of doesn't make any sense because tongues are language and fire is fire. You don't have language that looks like something. And so it seems like the author of Acts is really confusing his metaphors here or something. Unless you know the Old Testament story, unless you know the Jewish tradition, which was that when God gave Moses the law in the midst of fire, his words were so real and so efficacious that they seemed to be seeing them rather than just hearing them, which is precisely what's happening in the upper room this day. They are seeing God's tongue, his words, his language but they are seeing the language in the midst of fire because it is so real. And the Holy Spirit that now has been dwelling within them is unleashed. 
And it says, then they go out to all these people that are gathered for Pentecost and they start proclaiming the word of God. And all of these people are hearing them and they're like, wait, how do we hear this in our own languages? These guys are supposed to be speaking Hebrew or maybe Greek at best, but we hear them in all of our languages like Arabic or, or, or Pamphylian or Mesopotamian or whatever our languages, we all hear it because they're speaking in tongues of the languages that we understand. They go to where the people are and they proclaim the word of God. The church is now, you know, I, I always take issue with the idea that Pentecost is the birthday of the church. I, I, get, I get that, but the church is, is there before Pentecost. They're just scared and huddled and don't know what to do. God has given them the Holy Spirit. He's established the 12 apostles. They're huddled in the upper room. But now on Pentecost, that church is unleashed and there's no stopping it. And that church will go on throughout the story of the rest of the Acts of the Apostles to change the world, quite literally. So that's a great segue into our responsorial psalm, which is going from Psalm 104. And I don't have much to say about this, but I'll say this. The response is, Lord, send out your spirit and renew the face of the earth. Lord, send out your spirit and renew the face of the earth. The thing I find striking about this, now it's, it's an applicable uh, passage to the Pentecost story, right? He's sending out his spirit and he's literally going to renew the face of the earth. All these nations of the earth are gathered and they're being renewed. So there's a literal meaning to that. But where this sort of appears in the, the Psalter, the gathering of Psalms, I think is really significant. Psalm 104 falls toward the end of the Psalter. And the way the Psalter is organized, it's organized in terms of five books, five groupings of all the Psalms, which read kind of all together, tell the story of salvation history. So the first two books of the Psalms are all about the kingdom and the grandeur and when Israel was great and doing what God wanted. And then the third book of the Psalms is very dark and it talks about when that was all taken away and, you know, woe to us and all of this darkness. And then you have book four, which is a little bit more hope and okay, God is rebuilding things and he's, he's starting to uh, regather us as a people. And then all the Psalms that are gathered in the last book look forward to when God will indeed reestablish his kingdom, send a new David and rebuild all that was lost. And it's significant that that's where Psalm 104 lies, toward the end of the Psalter as we're looking forward. So imagine the Jewish people, maybe even every year on Pentecost, maybe during these feasts, saying, Lord, send out your spirit and renew the face of the earth. We know that things are dark. And just as we're celebrating the feast of the harvest, that you give us our food every year, you give us the fruit of the vine and the fruit of the ground to feed us and nourish us. Send out your spirit. We know it's coming. Just like in the wintertime when the fields look empty, we know that there is life underneath the surface that is about to grow. And so too, we know that the world is dark, but we know that there is life that you're waiting to send that hasn't been made manifest yet. And I imagine the Jewish people praying for that. Even the apostles maybe praying for that and now actually getting to experience the moment that that psalm is fulfilled. And of course, God's fulfillments come in layers, right? So we, in a certain sense, are still waiting for that. God has released his spirit. He has unleashed it. He has brought it to life in, in our hearts, um, certainly through the gift of confirmation, which we talked about last week. But we're still waiting for it to come in its fullness. There's still so much of the world that's blind to this. There's still so many parts of our own lives in which we're blind to this. But we know Jesus is coming again, and we know that he's going to lift the veil. And so we still pray this psalm in anticipation of what's to come. And if you're feeling dark or dry or like things are just real rough right now, just remember the Feast of Pentecost, that when you look out on the fields and they look barren, they look empty and dry and dead, 
we know that there's life underneath that's coming up in the spring and we know that the fruit is going to come back and it's going to bear fruit and we're going to see it with our own eyes. And that's what the spirit is going to continue to do in all of these seasons in our lives, which is a beautiful Psalm to reflect on today. I think that takes us to first Corinthians and first Corinthians. We're in chapter 12. This is, um, it comes in the midst of this kind of larger section about spiritual gifts. It's also the part of First Corinthians that always gets read at weddings. You know, the love is patient, love is kind, love is not boastful, love is, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's that part of First Corinthians, which some of us are familiar with. But the thing that's striking about um, really the whole letter of First Corinthians, and, and this, this passage taking on its own, uh, it's beautiful. So it begins by saying, brothers and sisters, and by the way, we're being dropped smack into the middle of a letter. But brothers and sisters, Paul says to the church in Corinth, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit. There are different forms of service, but the same Lord. There are different workings, but the same God who produces all of them and everyone to teach individual to teach to each individual, the manifestation of the spirit is given for some benefit. And so the body, though it has many parts, all of the parts of the body, though many are one body. And so is Christ for in one spirit, we're baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free persons, we're all given to drink in one spirit. That is demonstrated on the day of Pentecost, when the apostles come marching out of that room with former prostitutes and women who wouldn't have been as highly regarded in society and tax collectors and Pharisees and out-of-work fishermen and the ragtag group that the church actually is at that moment, all of whom have been given the manifestation of the Spirit. And they're given the gift to give it to all the rest of the people there. Lowly pilgrims, rich, wealthy, powerful people, Everybody across the board is receiving this gift that day, which is profound. But the other thing that's important to note about this is that in the context of 1 Corinthians, the church in Corinth, uh, I would love to you know do an online class even maybe about the church in Corinth. Uh, it's one of the most interesting books of the Bible. Corinth is a disaster and the church there is a mess and they are at each other's throats. They're filled with division and strife and jealousy and all sorts of horrible sins. And so as Paul is saying, well, look, there's different kinds of spiritual gifts. There's different parts of the body. There's different members that are, are given all these different gifts to contribute to the whole, which sounds on its own like we all have different gifts. Yay, let's hold hands and sing and sing Kumbaya and, you know, everybody's a part of the body and yay, look at us. And, and that's true. And that, that's all fine and good. But it's important to note that the Corinthians don't seem to believe that. They are convinced that some of them are better than others. There are first-class Christians and there are second-class Christians. And they don't believe that because, you know, Paul gives the whole body metaphor, right? Uh, the foot shouldn't say that just because I'm a foot means I'm, I'm not as good as the head or the nose isn't as good as the eye or, you know, one or the other, which we're like, oh, that's cute. And we teach it to our kids. We're like, you're like an eye in the body of Christ or you're, you're, you're the fingernail, whatever. But we, we forget that for the Corinthians, they didn't really buy into that. Paul needed to remind them that, no, how dare the foot think it's better than the head? How dare the ear think it's better than the arm? You are all parts of Christ's body, so stop fighting with one another and being at one another's throats. Can you imagine if the apostles, at that moment they were given the gifts of the Holy Spirit, started fighting with each other and arguing over which one's better? No, I want to go speak to the to Persians. No, I'm gonna go, I want to be the one to baptize the Mesopotamians because they're better than those guys. And there's a rich person over there and his wealthy family. I want to be the one to baptize those people. No, you can't do that. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna have this. And you know, dividing into sects and to you know start to to argue and have division among one another. Can you imagine what would have happened to the church's witness? 
if the church was at each other's throats and divided and fighting and jealous in those ways. That's what's happening in the church in Corinth. I think that's what's happening in many realms of our own church because we're human beings and that's what we do. And we fall into sin and jealousy and division and strife. So when Paul says, hey, it's not about you, no one has the authority to say that Jesus is Lord unless the Holy Spirit gives him the power to do it. What he's telling them is that it's not about you, even though you think that it is. You have nothing. You have no power on your own unless the Holy Spirit is working within you. But when you allow yourself to be formed by the Spirit, when you allow yourself to be opened and directed and moved by the Spirit, then he can do anything. Then he can change the world. Then he can flip the world upside down. But as long as you think it's you and you are better than everybody else or it's all of your efforts that are actually bearing this fruit, then you're going to miss it. And you're going to actually cause more division than you've solved. And the church is going to be a disaster. And people might look at us as a church and think that we're a joke or think that we're backwards or think that we're hate-filled or whatever it is that the world often thinks about us. And so I think when we hear this reading this Sunday, we should, uh, we should let it hit it perhaps harder than it would have otherwise. Because Paul's not speaking out of nowhere about how great it is that we all get along. He's speaking out of the fact that we tend to make it about us. When it's not about us, it's about the Holy Spirit that has been brought to life in our hearts through the gift of baptism, through the gift of confirmation, and ultimately through the gift of Pentecost that day. Which takes us finally to the gospel. And the gospel is a simple one. Um, it's like we're going back in time. It's like uh, we've, we've kind of done a flashback in the schema if this is kind of a narrative of readings. We're doing a flashback to before the ascension actually happened. And John chapter 20 is taking us back to Easter. He's taking us back. Is it Easter Sunday on the evening of the first day of the week? Yeah, it, I think it is Easter Sunday, if I'm not mistaken. And on that day, it, and it, what the gospels, what the, what the readings are telling us together is, hey, this is how we're moving forward. This is where we're going. This is what God is doing. We are marching forward. He's changing everything. He's brought the Holy Spirit to life in our hearts. And we're going to go baptize all the nations. And it's going to be incredible. But then the gospel is saying, but don't forget how you got there. Don't forget where you were. I mean, that's the beauty of personal testimony, personal witness. And that's really how the apostles end up changing the world is that they don't just say, hey, look at this message that I have. They say, look, this is where we were. And then Jesus came and now everything's different. But we can't forget where we were. We can't forget the darkness that we've come from. We can't forget the world entrenched in sin that Jesus came to redeem. We can't forget our own failures and weaknesses before Jesus began to change our lives. And so it says on the evening of that first day of the week, way back at Easter, 50 or so days ago, on the evening of that first Easter Sunday, when the doors were locked where the disciples were because they were terrified for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst. And they, they must have been like, we locked the doors, but he got in, he somehow got in, right? And he said to them, peace be with you. And they said, and with your spirit. No, they probably didn't. But he said, peace be with you. They're probably just dumbfounded, just staring at them. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And he said again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And they locked the doors again, of course, after that for 50 more days until they're actually sent. And he, it says, when he had said this, he breathed on, and breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive are forgiven them. Whose sins you retain are retained, which we could spend a whole podcast talking about how that relates to the gift of confession. But for now, 
We're just seeing how Jesus breathes his Holy Spirit on them. He did it before at the Last Supper. Now he does it again. That Holy Spirit's going to be activated again on Pentecost. But here's what I want to focus on. Here's sort of the last word, I guess, for this podcast. Jesus came and stood in their midst. He is glorified. He has passed through walls. He has passed through locked doors. He is clearly doing things that are beyond the laws of nature, right? He is performing the miraculous. He is in their midst. He has risen from the dead. He has passed through walls. He is glorified. This, I mean, imagine what it would be like to see him that day. Because it obviously looks like Jesus, but he's different. And what's the first thing he does when he appears? He says, peace be with you. And then he shows them his hands and his side. Why do you think he shows them his hands and his side? What is on his hands and his side? Well, big gaping wounds are in his hand and his side. And we know that because remember T. Diddy, Thomas Didymus, doubting Thomas, doesn't buy it and he wants to shove his fingers in there. So we know that they're still there. But I think I find it very striking that the first thing that Jesus does is say, look, look at my wounds. And what do they do? They rejoice. And I know I've said this before on the podcast because it resonates greatly with me. But it's so striking to me in his glorified form as he's risen from the dead, as he's trampled down death by death, as he's taken on a body that can pass through walls that is probably glowing in a way that Moses never dreamed of. He's still got gaping wounds and holes in his body that mark the suffering that he endured, that mark the abuse that he took. He kept those. And the first thing he does when he appears to the apostles is show them those. And they rejoice. Why do they rejoice? They rejoice not that he has holes in his hands and his side. They rejoice in that the holes in the hands and the side have not won. The holes in the hands and the side and the people and the forces and the demonic Satan who caused that did not win. And he retains the holes so everyone can always know that. Because we cannot live our lives pretending as though those things didn't happen. He doesn't show up and say, you can forget about Good Friday because now Easter Sunday is here. He says, no, you have to remember the first thing you need to remember is Good Friday. Look, it's marked in my body that Good Friday happened, but Good Friday didn't win. Easter Sunday won. And that's important for Jesus. And I think it's important that later on, it's only the Holy Spirit that will open their minds to that fact. When they finally say, oh, I get it now. And I can't imagine, you know, all the places in my life and all of your lives that there's just big gaping wounds. And there's holes that we don't understand why we retain. And we don't understand why we had to go through that thing or why we endure this or why we carry that cross. And I hope that every one of us has sort of a Pentecost moment, so to speak, when God reveals that moment and he says, look at that hole in your hand or in your side or in your heart or wherever it is. And that we actually have the grace of the Holy Spirit and the wherewithal to look at it and rejoice and say, oh, yeah, I remember that, but it didn't win. And I remember that cross and I still carry that cross, perhaps, but I know that it doesn't have the victory. And the only way, going back to 1 Corinthians, the only way we can say something like that, which is essentially saying Jesus is Lord, to look at the wounds in our lives and to say that didn't win is essentially to say Jesus Christ is Lord. Because I'm not, and that wound is not. And that damage and that evil one that damaged me is not Lord. Jesus is. But it's only through the Holy Spirit that we can say those words. And so when we look at those holes in our hands and our side, and we have the grace, I hope and I pray, to say, yeah, that didn't win, we can thank the Holy Spirit. 
And we can say, wow, you've given me the grace to see something I couldn't have seen on my own. You've given me the ability to look at the world in a way I, w- I couldn't have looked at it without you. Thank you. So I think if anything else, Pentecost this year should be an opportunity to thank the Holy Spirit for coming into our lives, for opening our eyes, and for allowing us, hopefully, to see the world as it is, not as it appears. And if we can't do that, and if we haven't done that yet, Pentecost is a great time to pray for the opportunity to do that. So thank you guys. That's all I got for today. We'll be back next week. Um, Keep us in your prayers. Keep Father Peter in your prayers. Uh, as he travels around Ireland and he has some time for prayer and reflection. Uh, We love you guys. Hope you have a wonderful beginning of the summertime, late spring, uh, and we will see you next time. Goodbye, everybody. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash A-I-C-T. You can send us an email, lankyguys, at thomascenter.org. And we love you guys. Keep us in your prayers.